Hello and welcome to Alone Together, the podcast that takes a look at the so-called new normal in life after lockdown. We pay tribute to the extraordinary people who have been doing their bit to keep their local communities going. And we answer some of your pressing questions about the pandemic. I'm Dan McLaughlin. And I'm Matt Millard. Coming up on today's episode, masks are on the mind, as well as on our faces, we hope. Morva McIntyre speaks to Dr. Simon Colstow from the University of Portsmouth about the importance of face masks and what the government should do to improve our wearing of them. The, the message that we're getting now, if that had been promulgated right at the start of this, I don't think there would have been any issues at all. And I certainly think as far as face masks wearing is concerned, um, in terms of the infection spread, there's plenty of evidence around at the moment from looking at many other diseases over many years that wearing face masks reduces the spread of infection. And in our Local hero segment, I speak to Anna Simmons about how Buell Hill Academy in Salford has been supporting families with food packages during the lockdown. To be honest, it was a much bigger response than we thought it was going to be. Um, when we, we set it out, we probably thought, oh, we, we kind of planned to do it for about 30 or 40. But um, yeah, 150. And we we made um, we made meals for them that they could then make at home. So yes, our focus on today's episode is the wearing of face masks or coverings. They recently became compulsory in enclosed public spaces such as shops, supermarkets and banks in England. Since the law came into force at the end of July, have you noticed any changes, Dan? Not massively, but a little change. There were people in Salford already wearing face masks, including myself. Um, but I've only seen a slight increase of people actually wearing them in enclosed public spaces. I know it's mm. almost sort of, sort of a witch hunt to point at people saying, why aren't you wearing a face mask, you selfish thing? But we're, so, we're kind of getting there. I don't know. There seems to be like a puerile, infantile sort of rebellion against them from certain people. They just believe that they're exempt because they're special. Whereas, well, it, it's it's rather selfish, I think, not to wear one. It doesn't take much to wear a face mask. When you're in these enclosed public spaces, you know, you're in the shop for, for not long. Uh, you're in a bank for not long. Even without the research, if you, if you said to someone, this might help, you might as well go for it because it might help. I'm I'm fully on board. Yeah, we should definitely be wearing them. But yeah, I think it's the same in Birmingham. There's there are the few that that maybe don't wear them, or there's those that wear them maybe over their mouths and and not covering their nose. So maybe there's some still there's still some confusion there over you know what we should and shouldn't be doing. And hopefully we can clear some of that up um, during uh, today's show. There's a um, interview that we keep referring to from our podcast from the first series of Alone Together with. Derek Watson from the University of Sunderland, where he talks about sort of our new behaviours in terms of hand washing. And he says, you know, when it's, whether it's hand washing or in this case, whether it's face masks, to have this behaviour, you've got to repeat the behaviour over maybe a couple of weeks, a couple of months. Now that they're compulsory, hopefully that's going to res, uh, result in people practising this method in weeks and months. And therefore, it's just going to become quite natural at the end of it. Yeah, it should be the, you know, ex exactly that, you know, it should, you shouldn't have to think twice. It should, you know, should just come naturally and you put the mask on. I've, there's, there's all sorts of memes on the internet of, you know, 
got my keys, my wallet, and then you see someone running back into a house or or running backwards going, oh no, I forgot my mask. But yeah, it's it's true. Um, I think we're all guilty for for maybe it slipping our mind from time to time. Well, so, yeah, saying that, that, that's probably the case in some ways. But I found myself increasingly walking out of these enclosed uh, public spaces with the masks still on and not realising until I'm about 15 mm. minutes walk down the in the open air, you know, that I've still got it on. I think it depends how comfortable your mask is as well. I've got two masks. I've got one kind of lighter weight, thin one, which you don't notice that's on. And then I've got this other huge, big, like kind of industrial thing that um, I thought looked cool at the time and, you know, it had all the correct safety ratings and, and, and everything. But you, you wear the thing for five minutes and you just want to take it off. But yeah, <laughs> there we go. Well, that's, uh, that's certainly our observations on the topic, but it's time to get an expert in to give their verdict. Alone together's Morvin McIntyre spoke to Dr. Simon Colstow. He's the senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth and an academic in evidence-based healthcare. He discusses the research into the effectiveness of face masks. So, uh, hi Simon, can you explain for anyone who doesn't know what sort of work you do? Great. So my work is mainly supporting clinicians in conducting research in hospitals or in GP surgeries or out in the community. So I spend a lot of time talking with clinicians about important medical related um, issues that need researching and then helping them to design effective research. So trying to come up with good research questions, methodologies, and then analyzing the results in in the broadly health, health related sphere. So today we're here to talk about face masks. How do masks then reduce the spread of the virus? Okay, so I think it's important to realize that they're two different types of masks and and people really wear masks for two different reasons. The first reason is as personal protective equipment. Um, And this is where things called respirator masks come in. And these are specifically designed to filter out particles of a various size. So um, there's there's various standards for these, but typically people will use salt particles of a known size, so 0.6 micrometers. Um, And then there's types of masks called FFP1 masks that can prevent 80% of these particles going through. FFP2 prevents 94% of particles going through. Um, And then there's another standard FFP3 that prevents 99% of particles going through. And these are the sorts of face masks that are routinely worn when people need to protect themselves from viruses. So for instance, working in hospitals or working in laboratories. So that's personal protective equipment. And then there's a second type of face mask, which isn't really designed to protect the wearer, but is more designed to um, limit how far their breath goes. So it's it's more often used in things like infection control. Um, And this is where surgical masks um, play a role because there there's... The two aims of surgical masks is firstly to protect um, splashes from liquids going on on the surgeon, but then secondly, to stop the surgeon breathing into the wound. So these are more sort of breath diverting devices. So they have a very different role because they're not really about protecting the wearer, but they're about limiting how far the wearer's breath goes and thus protecting other people around them. And so I think it's quite important to realize these two different reasons why you might wear a mask. So how much research so far in the UK has been done around mask wearing and if, you know, if there is science, scientific evidence then to wear masks? 
Yeah, so I mean, there is a huge amount of research that shows that wearing face masks for personal protective reasons is really effective. After all, astronauts wear helmets when they go into space, um, when people are going into environments, risky environments, you know, even people working on a building site when there's going to be a lot of dust in the air, they wear face masks. So there's an awful lot of evidence out there that shows wearing face masks for personal protective reasons and wearing regulated face masks is a really effective thing to do to protect yourself. Um, so I think the scientific evidence is uncon uncontroversial when it comes to wearing face masks to protect yourself. In terms of wearing face masks to, pre to prevent the spread of infection, there's certainly less research, but there has been quite a lot done um, looking at infectious diseases like tuberculosis and the effect of wearing surgical masks, for instance, in a hospital environment to stop patients infecting other patients or infecting staff. So although there isn't any studies as yet specifically looking at COVID-19, um, that's no huge surprise because it takes months, if not years, to run those sorts of studies. But there's plenty of evidence from other studies that wearing face masks does pre prevent infection, is helpful when prevention, infection control is an issue, and therefore is a very sensible thing to do if we as a community are wanting to limit the spread of an infectious disease. And um, from the studies that have been conducted so far, does it show that a particular demographic of people are more likely to wear face masks than others? So I think this is a quite an interesting question because when we, I don't think it's to do with demographic per se, but I think it's to do with how well people understand the arguments for wearing face masks. And one of the problems we had with this pandemic is right at the beginning, there was a lack of personal protective equipment. And obviously, it's really important for hospital staff and other people working in environments where they will come into close contact with other people, some of whom may have COVID. It's obviously really important that they have appropriate personal protective equipment. We know this works. But if there is a shortage, it would obviously be a problem to advise everyone in the population to get PPE because then the people working in those high-risk environments wouldn't have access to it. So certainly the messaging right at the beginning went out saying, don't buy PPE because we don't want to um, risk shortages for key workers. Then the message kind of came out that said, well, if you can't get hold of PPE, you can sort of make something at home and that will kind of do. And their people rightly said, well, PPE is made to specific standards. Just making a face mask at home is not going to be anywhere close to as effective as the pers for personal protection. So therefore, why on earth should we be wearing face masks? And there the messaging went wrong because if the messaging had been, right, this is not about protecting yourself. This is about protecting the spread of an infectious agent. and Therefore, any sort of face covering, much like covering your mouth when you cough, is going to sort of limit the spread of the infectious. And therefore, you're making homemade face masks not to protect yourself, but to avoid breathing on other people. If that messaging had gone out, um, I think far more people would have accepted it. And so I think around face mask wearing and getting back to your original question, rather than demographic, it's more the people, I think, who understand that the reason why they're wearing a face mask is to protect other people are the ones who are more likely to wear it. And the people who might think that a homemade face mask is a poor substitution for personal protective equipment are probably the ones who are less likely to wear it. So I think the messaging has played a massive role in, the, in, in determining who does and who, who doesn't wear these masks. So you kind of touched on that by talking about PPE equipment and how there was shortages and government obviously rightly wanted to allocate that to people in key worker jobs. Is that the main reason you think then the government didn't advise from the beginning 
about wearing face masks because it is fairly recent that it's been enforced a lot more. But at the start, it wasn't really something that, yeah, we were told to do as as a population. Absolutely. I, I think, I mean, this has been a fast moving situation and, you know, it's been a very complex situation. And I think initially when people thought about face masks, um, the sort of gut reaction about face masks is that they're there to protect yourself. So I think initially people were thinking, well, it's we can't advise the population to wear face masks to protect themselves because that will then lead to shortages. And there wasn't really that clear recognition right at the start that protecting yourself is not the only reason to wear wear face masks. And I think if that messaging right at the I think if that understanding had been there right at the start and the message had gone out that you're wearing these face masks to protect the community to to reduce the spread of the infection rather than just about protecting yourself. I think then the recommendation to wear face masks would have happened a lot earlier. But I think the reason why there's been this delay is because it's taken so long for people to really get a clear view that there's two reasons to wear face masks. And um, the second reason about stopping the, the spread of infection is the reason why people are being asked to wear them. Um, but but that messaging, as I said, was not clear. And in fact, in, in some ways, I think many politicians and other people just didn't really understand that right at the beginning um, of the pandemic. Do you think then that that unclear messaging was why, and the fact the government didn't say it from the beginning, is why there's a lack of actually belief that these masks work and a lack of education around understanding how these masks may protect others. And that's the reason why then it's some people don't believe in wearing them. Absolutely. Um, Because, you know, the advice coming out at the beginning was don't wear PPE, don't wear face masks. And now the advice is do wear face masks, but it's not PPE face masks, it's face masks to present prevent the infection. If, if the, the message that we're getting now, if that had been promulgated right at the start of this, I don't think there would have been any issues at all. Um, I think because there was this mixed messaging at the beginning, the I mean, we saw the panic buying with things like Roll. It would have probably been really, really easy to like, panic buying around face masks. And I think avoiding that panic buying was the main aim right at the beginning of the, the pandemic. And now when there's not that worry is not um, quite so forefront in people's mind, they're able to give a sort of slightly more nuanced message. But it's obviously got us into a situation now where there's an awful lot of people who don't think that wearing a face mask is a good idea. And that, that's a really unfortunate position to be in. And I suppose, though, as well, going back to the point about you were saying government messaging, some people as well would say that you don't have to wear a mask, for example, in a restaurant or a pub. And obviously because you're eating or drinking. But then, for example, you have to wear one in a supermarket or a shop. So I think maybe as well, that's one of the reasons why people are a bit more skeptical, because in some contexts indoors, they don't have to wear them in other contexts, they do. Yes. So this is something I'm a little bit cross about in the way the messaging's gone out. If the messaging had been whenever you go into a crowded place, wear a face mask because that helps mitigate the infection risk. I think that's a much clearer message. And then you could say, well, of course, if you're in a pub, and you're, you're drinking, well, of course, you've got to move your face mask aside to, to take a sip from your drink and maybe even take it off while you're drinking that pint. But if you're not drinking and you're not eating, it's safer for everyone if you just put that face mask on. So I think rather than distinguishing between specific settings and saying, oh, in this setting, you should wear one and in this setting, you shouldn't wear one. If the advice was when you go into a crowded place, when you have close contact with other people, when you're in a confined space, Please wear a face mask unless you're eating or drinking, and obviously you need to move it aside. Likewise, in places like gyms, I think um, 
face masks don't inhibit um, the amount of air you breathe in. So it's mostly fine to wear a face mask if you're, say, on a running machine. Um, but if you're swimming, say, that that would be a completely ludicrous thing to do. So I think there's also that level of, well, based upon the activity, um, if it's possible to wear a face mask, wear a face mask. But if you're going swimming or if you're on a treadmill in a gym or something, then it's probably fine to take it aside. So I think messaging that was just a load clearer, if you're in crowded places, if you're in confined spaces, if you're around other people, please wear a face mask unless you're eating or drinking or swimming and that would be a much better message but no unfortunately they specified based upon location and that of course has caused a certain additional level of confusion as well and you mentioned earlier how long it can take to actually collate research for certain studies so is the fact that you know a fully randomized scientific study hasn't been done yet and that's giving some backup to the mass critics so one of the things I spend a lot of time discussing um, in my job is how much evidence do you need to have before you can make a, a important clinical decision? And there are always more experiments that could be done. You can always come up with another experiment that, that might, be need, might be needed. And the question is, is there sufficient evidence to lead to a certain course of action? And I certainly think as far as face masks wearing is concerned um, in terms of the infection spread there's plenty of evidence around at the moment from looking at many other diseases over many years that wearing face masks reduces the spread of infection now yes of course the experiments haven't yet been done for covid in particular but you know covid it's a, it comes from a coronavirus there's plenty of other coronaviruses out there there's influenza we we know about face masks being effective in, in pre- preventing um, infection control for other diseases. So do you actually need to do the specific study on COVID before you believe it? Or do you accept the evidence that has come from other studies? And then in due course, when we see the evidence from COVID, that then goes into the bank of evidence that we know about face masks. So I think it's a very poor excuse to say that just because the specific population level observational study hasn't been done on COVID means there isn't evidence for face masks. So I think that's a really poor argument because there's plenty of other evidence out there that shows they're, they're a good thing to wear for infection control. And uh, many people are now wearing homemade face masks. Are those effective? Um, So there, of course, it really depends. The whole reason why we have standards and manufacturing standards is so that um, people who purchase things know that they're actually effective in what you want in, in their purpose. So if you're going to buy a bicycle helmet, for instance, you look for a specific rating to know that that's going to protect you if you fall off your bicycle. And of course, face masks are exactly the same. Both ones used for PPE and surgical masks. There are um, specific standards that things are built to. If you buy something that doesn't have that standard or, or hasn't been tested to that standard, um, you have no real way of knowing how effective it actually is. Thus said, that doesn't mean that anything that doesn't have isn't made to that standard isn't going to be effective. You could well design something that will be as effective, if not more effective. Um, and here it seems um, from, I mean, I, I've recommended people doing what I call the candle test. So you put a face mask on and see if you can blow a candle out. A, a surgical mask is extremely effective at um, stopping you blowing a candle out. Um, some homemade or, or fashion face masks don't. Um, don't stop your breath much at all. You can blow a candle out straight through them. Others are really effective. So I really recommend take a face mask, try it, see if you can blow a candle out through it. If you can't blow the candle out, then it's probably a very effective mask. 
Um, and this sort of criteria that seems to matter is having multiple layers of fabric. So two or three layers of fabric are important, ideally different types of fabric as well. So cotton mixed with silk seems to be um, very effective. Um, and then, of course, it needs to be well fitting. So have a good seal over the nose, um, go well under your chin and up the side of your, your cheeks as well. And remember, these masks, they only really um, divert the direction of your breath. So it's sort of your breath is always going to come out. But the important thing is that rather than being projected in front of you for a long distance, it comes out over your body or around the side of your head. Um, and, and that. So, so yes, of course, masks not made to a standard. We've got no way of knowing for sure whether or not um, they're as, as effective. But I think there are things that you can look for in masks and find a fashion-based or, or a homemade mask that can be certainly as equally effective as, as some of the, um, the, the certified masks. So are you better then to wear a cloth mask or a surgical mask or is it like you say just doing a test and you know a, a cloth mask is fine as long as you're you know you can't blow out a candle and other factors like that and it's well fitted? I think as long as it's well fitted and you can't blow out a candle you can't go too far wrong um, and I think there is a, a fashion element to it. Certainly in my family I have a box of surgical face masks and those are the ones I use um, whereas my wife and my daughter have a sort of floral designed one which we have tested on a candle and do seem to work and they much prefer to wear those one of my sons has a sports branded mask and he always likes to wear that one as well um, so there does seem to be a sort of a level of, of personal preference within these things I, I think because I'm used to working in medical type environments I just feel a bit happy happier wearing a, a, a surgical mask something that I've been wearing for years and understand about but I've certainly seen my family prefer other types of masks which I think in this case are probably just as effective as, as the surgical masks that I wear. And uh, you've touched on this a bit already but um, is there anything else that we should look out for when buying a face mask you've talked about the it being well fitted but are there any other factors that if anyone's listening and they're, you know, they're going out to buy a face mask, what they should look out for? So one thing we haven't touched on, which I think is an interesting discussion, is, is how effective face shields are. So these are these sort of plastic perspex field, um, shields that people wear over their faces. Um, and if the aim, as I've been saying, is to prevent you breathing over other people, um, there's certainly been a couple studies um, which, which predate the whole COVID situation that shows that these plastic face shields are very effective. And of course, you've got the advantage there that people can see your full face. So if, for instance, you're dealing with someone who has communication difficulties, who, for instance, needs to lip read, or with children, where it's quite important that they sort of see your whole face when you're communicating with them, I think face shields could be a very good option as well. And you can get some which have little um, bits of fabric at the bottom, which sort of just helps the seal at the, at the bottom of the face shield and to ensure that your breath gets diverted um, on your chest rather than sort of squirting through up through underneath the face shield so i think face shields can be a very good option as well they are unfortunately a bit more uncomfortable to wear and i've certainly found significant misting up issues with them when i wear them with glasses um, mm. so I, I prefer wearing a surgical mask but face shields could be a very good option for for a number of settings as well and uh, you've said that by wearing a mask it's more of a political statement and it's seen as a statement of solidarity so what do you mean by this Yes, so this is a statement which I think got slightly misinterpreted by an enthusiastic headline writer from an article I wrote a couple of months ago. Um, and what I think I was meaning there is that 
the argument is not around science per se, because I think it's not contentious from a scientific perspective. We know face masks work. They should be worn for infection control. The reason why I think people are having an argument is not around the scientific facts, but around perhaps um, cultural and social issues um, with regards to wearing something over your face. Um, the mixed messaging hasn't helped at all. So there was a paper published in 2006 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology called Are the Windows to the Soul the Same in the East and the West? Cultural Differences in Using the Eyes and Mouth as Cues to Recognize Emotions in Japan and the United States. And in this um, work, the, the researchers found that in the East, people tend to, um, tend to interpret emotions based upon the eyes, whereas in the West, the mouth is far more important when we're interpreting emotions from other people. And it's really interesting to notice in the current situation that generally countries in the East have been happier to wear face masks compared to countries in the West. And so there does seem to perhaps be a psychological factor to how comfortable different cultures are with face masks based upon how we're used to communicating with people and interpreting the emotions of other people. So I think there may be psychological, cultural reasons why the West are more resistant to wearing face masks. You also have to consider um, recent discussions around things like the niqab in um, Islamic culture and, and covering the face and the, the general resistance that Europeans have had to wearing face coverings. And so on top of all that, um, all that sort of history is um, also people wearing um, in a lot of political protests, people will sort of complain about being gagged and wear something across the mouth to, to, to try and put across the point that they're not being allowed to speak. So I think given that sort of cultural background, it's probably no surprise that people within the West, within Europe and the United States in particular, are a little bit resistant about wearing something across their mouth, across their face, which is such an obvious thing as well. So although I think the scientific arguments are very clear and there isn't much contention at all from a scientific perspective, I can see why there might be psychological or social arguments for people not wanting to wear these face masks. Now, when I said it's about science, it's about solidarity and not about science, what I was more meaning is that the argument itself is not really about scientific things. The argument is about cultural things, about you know the, the view of solidarity and within our culture um, and, and I think that's why there is contention around wearing face masks. You talked about um, other cultures there, particularly Asian cultures. So do you think eventually face masks will become the norm in the way it has in Asian countries? So I think there are cultural reasons why they wouldn't be as popular in Western countries compared to Asian countries. Having said that, with everything that has happened around COVID, I think it has increased our awareness of infection control. And thus, having had to wear face masks for a certain period as we've gone through this COVID um, crisis, I'm pretty certain that it will become more expected that if you do have a cold, even you know, the flu, or, or if you have to go out and you're feeling ill, um, I think it may well become more expected for people just to wear a face mask and just to see people wearing face masks if they're aware that they've got a cold um, to try and avoid spreading it to other people. So in the past, it's not been something that you've seen particularly commonly around, around big cities in the West, but I think it's probably something that we will see increased use of. Use of. Um, specifically um, for when people are aware that they've got a cold. And I think all of us have, have met, had meetings with people before where you've known they've had a cold and you've gone away feeling a little bit cross that, you know, they'd be sitting in a room across from you when they might have flu or something and, and they might give you your cold. And I think 
um, those sorts of situations could actually get easier in the, in the future because people will hopefully be wearing masks um, if you have to go into work and you've got a cold. So I do think it's something that will become more accepted um, um, going forward. And um, as well as wearing masks, what other things can we do to both protect ourselves and others? So, yeah, so the, the, the three key things, and this is the, the World Health Organization is trying to get across, is avoid being in crowded places, avoid close contact with other people, and avoid being in confined indoor spaces. And, and wearing a mask will never be as effective as, as following those sort of three Cs and, and avoiding those sorts of places. Um, but if you do have to go in those places, then you just have to think about, well, how can I mitigate the risks? That, that we're going, th- that um, that that we have to, you know, just just to work or to go shopping, you know, we have to go into those sorts of places. So they're obviously wearing face masks is one thing we can do. Washing hands frequently, trying not to touch your face frequently, um, is important. If you know you've got a cold, if you know you're feeling ill, then absolutely don't go out. Um, get a COVID test if if you're not sure about it. Um, a lot of it is fairly sort of common sense type things that we're, we're told. From, from the age of children, you know, if you're going to cough, cover your mouth when you cough. We're, we're told about these sorts of things um, um, from, from when we're children. So I think there's that sort of element of common sense and thinking, well, if, you, if, you, if I do have to go into a situation um, where I am going to be in close contact with a lot of people, the underground is, is in, in London is, is the obvious one I always think of, then just think about wearing face masks, washing your hands. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe wearing a jumper and changing it after you've been on the underground, those sorts of things are, are really important. And um, if you could give a message to those people who are reluctant to wear face masks, what would you say? I'd say the scientific evidence is very clear. Um, face masks are important for infection control and think about other people and it's not just about you. And if it makes other people feel happier, why why wouldn't you do it? Well, thank you very much for your time today. That was really insightful and uh, it was really interesting as well to hear about um, not just the scientific factors, but also the government messaging and and perhaps why certain messages haven't been clear and and why and how that's really been interpreted by the population. So it was really interesting. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Simon Colstow speaking to Alone Together's Morvin McIntyre. So the research is clear, face masks are effective. What has been less clear, particularly from the government, as Dr. Colstow remarks there, is the communication about this, you know, and what does the government need to do? Well, that's it. Communication needs to be clear, whether it's about face masks or recently, I'm based in Salford, I'm recording this from my place in Salford and you're doing it in Birmingham. We're under another local lockdown in Greater Manchester, parts of Lancashire, parts of Yorkshire. And when that was announced, that was announced on Twitter two hours before it's going to be enforced, rather than doing more of a traditional approach, announcing it, even if it was announced in the morning, that would have been fine. And if it would have been done at the press briefing or a press conference for it to be scrutinised, you know, you've got really senior journalists who've been covering this story from day one and we've been doing this podcast from practically the start of the lockdown. And yep. it left us utterly confused to the point where the government then had to do another announcement the morning after because they confused the messaging. You know, this, this is not just a case of um, people who don't know much about the topic being confused about something. It's people who are pretty in-depth in their knowledge. And they, even then, that they need more information or certainly better, clearer messaging from the government itself. 
Now, coming up next is the return of our local hero segment, a part of the podcast that is dedicated to those charitable people and organizations that have been giving up their time to help those in need during the pandemic. Whilst pupils at Buell Hill Academy in Salford have been home educating, teachers from the school have been providing support and food packages for parents who've been struggling in lockdown. Anna Simmons, the Associate Assistant Head Teacher at Buell Hill Academy, told me her story. So f- firstly, what have you been doing to help uh, the families during, during the lockdown and um, these extraordinary times? As a school, we we serve quite um, a challenging area of socio-economic deprivation, um, and we we were really aware we're really aware of that. We've we've ensured that we've got welfare calls in place for all of our children, and we've called um, weekly um, since the since the lockdown has, has started. So every child's received a weekly phone call from it, um, and our vulnerable children who we identified outside of what the government recommendations were um just on our knowledge of them you know them and their family and um, we've called them once a day and um, they've received daily contact and it's been the same person throughout um which i think has really helped you know build relationships and um have some sort of constant throughout what is a really you know chaotic and crazy time um we've done um we made visors in school for our children um that were key workers that were in but also these were for our families um and we had lots of parents that work at the hospital um in Salford who are maybe physios porters all kinds of different roles um we had we gave some to Hindley prison as we had um a parent who worked there so we've tried to really impact the community we're working within and then um another thing we did was ask parents if they were struggling financially as we realized a lot of our parents maybe have been made redundant or were furloughed um and that they were starting to rely on food banks that's the information that we were getting through from the the welfare phone calls so we decided that it was a good idea um to email all our parents and ask them if they needed any support with food that we would provide a food parcel for them with five meals um for everybody in their family and then some extra sort of supplies on top of that um to accompany you know those meals and sort of breakfasts and lunches and things um yeah and then we've, we've just done the the kind of the usual things that we have in school really you know obviously we've provided work we've done we, we run instagram accounts we've got loads of instagram accounts um as we found that this was the most useful way to communicate with our families um from parent and child survey that we did this was the sort of social media aspect that they use the most um and so we've set up a daily tv show um, where we give them information about what's happening in school that they can get involved in we've done assemblies on there virtual assemblies you know that have allowed them to have um re- receive rewards and you know have them have a bit of a message about things that are happening in the world um like they would do if they were in school and it's it's all about trying to keep the children and the families connected that's been our well-being strategy really is is stay connected because we know that by being connected that's going to support everybody's mental health and well-being and because of that we have seen referrals to the counsellors in school that we have but they've fluctuated so we've had children maybe go on and then come off again just in the normal ebb and flow that we would expect in school so how many families have you do you reckon that sort of received the support from you 
we've got about 750 children. So, I mean, the fam, for example, the food, the food parcels we delivered to about 155 families. That's, yeah. that's a lot. That is a lot yeah, of families. It was, it was, to be honest, it was a much bigger response than we thought it was going to be. Um, when we, we set it out, we probably thought, oh, we, we kind of planned to do it for about 30 or 40. But um, yeah, 150. And we, we made, um, we made meals for them that they could then make at home. So a curry, a pasta bake, um, a chili, and oh, and a Spanish sort of potatoy, patatas bravas style um, dish. And then there was a, there was ingredients for a crumble as well, a fruit crumble. And then obviously we put in um, staples like bread, eggs, um, extra potatoes, um, a, some sandwich meat or chew, a kind of cans of tuna, you know, to try and provide lunches and breakfast and those kind of things when you say we is that teachers all staff yeah so i organized it with the head of our food and nutrition department um pete matthews so we kind of came up with the plan and did the ordering and the organization but when we realized we we, it's quite funny actually because we were doing it and we were like right okay so everyone needs an onion and we did it as a portion so if you obviously some of our families had 10 people in and some had two so we, we had to sort of portion it per, you know, per per two people. That's how we worked it out. Um, so when we were ordering, we were like, right, okay, so we need 1,800 onions. And we just started to laugh hysterically and realised that there was probably no way we could do this in an afternoon on our own. So um, we sent a plea out. I emailed all the teachers in school and sent a plea out for help packing um, on the on the day that the food was coming into school. So we had about 20 teachers come in and we all socially distanced around all the different classrooms around the food and nutrition area. Um, and we'd, we'd either measure, people were either measuring out ingredients. So say, for example, you got 100 grams of flour per per portion. Um, so people, and but the flour came in 10 kilo bags. So we were, you know, people were measuring out and sourcing it out and then packing the bags for the food. Um, putting the addresses on make, and then we have people doing quality control making sure that everybody had the right ingredients and a menu and a recipe card in their bag and um, we were very kindly donated bags from tesco's um which is just in our community so that was really really generous and then the following day um everything was delivered so pete and i organized um the addresses into sort of cluster areas around our community um, so that people were kind of only delivering to you know maybe ten houses in one vicinity, um, and yeah, and we had about twenty twenty five members of staff coming to help on that day as well. So it was a real team effort from the whole um, staff body to our to our pupils and our families community and in the community. What sort of stories have you been hearing from families? What have they what have their reaction been to to, to your help? It was lovely. To be honest, we had so many people um, send photos of the food, um, you know, people sitting down to eat the dinners um, and the meals together and then photos of the children cooking it because the the parents said, oh, you know, we've got this from school and here's the recipe card because that was kind of part of the idea as well to to encourage the children to do the cooking. So we'd made the recipe card um, very clear instructions along along the lines of how they would do if they're in a food and nutrition lesson. And um, so we had loads of those photos and we had lots and lots of emails. One um, one family emailed to say that she'd opened the door and seen the teacher and she was like an angel as she really struggled um, 
and was panicking about how she was going to feed her family for the next few days um, as she literally had nothing and she was she was starting to get you know very anxious about it and she opened the door to this food and she said she shut the door and, and just wept um, because of the relief that kind of came over to know that she was all right for another week um, so yeah we had quite a few stories like that really of people just you know saying what a relief it was how it had taken away some of the stress and worries of feeding the families um, over for the next few days well, this interview's been part of our segment about local heroes, and I think that's a, a very fitting for your incredible work. So, thank you for, for your, oh, for your work you. helping those families. Thank you very much. Anna Simmons, associate assistant head teacher at Buell Hill Academy in Salford, telling telling me their story in our local heroes segment. Now, do you know any local heroes that deserve recognition on our podcast, or have you got your own positive? community stories to tell well get in touch with me matt and morvin by following loadable on twitter where we are at loadable pods or by searching for loadable underscore podcasts on instagram yes indeed alone together is one of many podcasts produced by loadable coming from the newsrooms of birmingham live the edinburgh evening news and the manchester evening news and this next one is from the liverpool echo Yes, The Brink is the podcast that travels back to 1980s Liverpool to witness the rise and fall of Militant, one of the most controversial groups in British politics. Liverpool Echo journalist Julia Rampen chronicles her fight against Margaret Thatcher, speaking to key figures from the time, including Militant's Derek Hatton, former Labour leader Neil Kinnock, ex-Tory minister Michael Heseltine, and many more colourful characters. Here's what you can expect from the brink. For three decades, the leaders of Britain's centre-left Labour Party had denounced Militant as a cancer, a secretive cult that almost wrecked their movement and brought shame on a city, Liverpool. But there's another story about Militant, it's a story about a decade of extremes, where government cuts forced local politicians to make impossible choices. It's a story about a northern city that took on Margaret Thatcher. And it's a story of ordinary men and women caught in the middle of a huge political gamble. We were definitely there to subvert. We were not there to play the game. And we were fairly certain we weren't going to be there for long. But we you know, we were there to do a particular job. I mean, the thing about militant is that they were a secret conspiracy. I mean, this sounds melodramatic and so on, but they were. Tell me another local council that could ever mobilise 50,000 people on the streets in support of it. So this idea that militant was just parachuted in is not, it's not true. They were, they were of the people and they were popular amongst the people. Even if you lost at the end of the day, it was still better to try and put up a fight. And of course, Liverpool and the miners particularly, also Lambeth did put up a huge resistance. In a way, it was its own worst enemy because it had such a sense of humour. If something goes wrong across the country, the sharp journalist goes to Liverpool because the way it will be described, the wit and humour uh, will be the sharpest and the funniest. Um, uh, but of course that does create a sort of atmosphere that Liverpool is where the trouble always is. We knew the risks and it was very serious. 
but that's what we were there for. We were there to, for a battle. We weren't there for um, personal aggrandizement or for to let Thatcher win, you know. So yeah, it was serious, it was sad, you know, but we were doing it. Now, Militant, in one sense, was stupid because, you know, Margaret Thatcher had already seen off 10 IRA hunger strikers in, in Northern Ireland in 1981. She'd not kowtowed out to them, even though the IRA engaged in a serious bombing campaign. So where was the evidence that she would give in to Liverpool City Council? No, damn no. They couldn't underestimate Thatcher because they'd spent years spelling out, as I had, uh, evils and a malevolent intent. Um, how did it feel at the time? I mean, incredibly furious, and I wanted to go knock him out on the platform, but at the same time, so disappointed as well. It was gut-wrenching. No, it was horrible. It was, it was really very, very bad. I was just, how dare you? Just how dare you? They were supposed to be there for the serious business of defending the city and its people, and they were just playing politics. This is the podcast that dives deep into 1980s Liverpool and the politics that emerged from it. This is The Brink. So there you go. Do make sure to check out The Brink and the other podcasts available through Laudable. And that's all we've got time for on Alone Together. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening to our podcast. So stay safe stay positive, stay informed, and stay tuned. You can download Alone Together wherever you listen to your podcasts, but for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the entire app for iOS and Android. See you next time.